Welcome, everyone. It's time to focus your attention and presence. And listen with an open mind. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Flying Sage podcast. This is your host, Michael Oliver. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Legacy Journeys, a guiding practice I started two years ago. Bridging ceremonial, clinical, and therapeutic approaches, Legacy Journeys offers transformational psychedelic experiences towards embodiment and lasting change. We host individual journeys as well as retreats, utilizing a variety of different medicines. To learn more, visit LegacyJourneys.ca. And without further ado, please enjoy this episode of the Flying Sage podcast. Here we go. Welcome, Deus, to another episode of the Flying Sage podcast. This is episode 15, and I'm very delighted to be chatting with you today. You are a close friend and a community leader with the Flying Sage, and I am very stoked to get into some exciting topics with you today. So welcome to the Flying Sage podcast. Thanks, brother. First, I wanted you to provide a little bit of context for people that are maybe tuning into you for the first time. They haven't heard about you before. They're curious about your background. Would you be able to share a little bit about where your journey with altered states of consciousness began? Hmm. Where did it begin? <laughs> Before I was born. Hmm, that's a surprisingly challenging question to answer. Maybe I'll work my way backwards. So I've been facilitating psychedelic ceremonies with my partner, Aga, for about six years now. And it's not something that I ever planned on stepping into. I was actually quite judgmental towards people who would step into a facilitation role in psychedelic spaces if they weren't coming from a traditional lineage. So it's kind of curious that I found myself here. But the thing that drew me to the path that I've been on over the last 16 years or so, because it's been about that long that I've been on a conscious path of not only exploring the fundamental nature of reality and self, but starting to explore psychotherapeutic processes quantum physics, modern mysticism, yogic philosophy, indigenous practice. My first experience with ayahuasca in a ceremonial setting was when I was 20, but it wasn't the major catalyst for me. I was already pursuing enlightenment as my sole focus. I had an extremely profound spiritual experience while I was traveling through Guatemala, where my sense of self just expanded rapidly, infinitely in all directions. And it happened a few times. And I lost a tangible sense of self, uh, localized identity. And a few days later, I was back in Canada, very confused and disoriented. I didn't know where to go for answers. And so I actually sold everything I owned. I left the job that I was in. I left the relationship that I was in. And I went to go be a monk with an organization called Self-Realization Fellowship. As I was preparing to leave to go to that ashram, I had my first ayahuasca experience. So it was a supplement and a support to my path, but it was never the primary method that I was using. 
long story short, throughout my 20s, I obviously didn't become a monk. <laughs> they told me to go get more life experience <laughs> before I took lifelong vows of obedience and celibacy and all those things, which was very wise of them. But when I came back to Canada, I was quite lost. I didn't know how to reintegrate back into society. So most of my 20s were very nomadic and I would do seasonal work and then I would go live in spiritual communities or ashrams or pursue different workshops or immersions and just continued my explorations. That's also when I started living in Nelson for a period of time and was first introduced to indigenous practices, specifically of the Blackfoot tradition. There was a sweat lodge out in Grand Forks being put on by one of my teachers and friends, Billy Metcalf. And then he ended up inviting me to a Sundance down in Southern Alberta on the blood reserve there, which I've been supporting as a firekeeper and as a drummer since 2012. And then I started transitioning into facilitation and that took some time, but the catalyst for that was I got certified in a methodology called transformational art led by Dana Lynn Anderson. And that's a combination of art therapy, yogic philosophy, and consciousness studies. And when I came back from that certification program, I started writing and performing spoken word poetry as a way of exploring and offering a living transmission of some topic, some meaningful topic that I wanted to share with other people. That led to me getting invitations to do workshops. That led to requests for coaching. And that's when I started moving into facilitation. And shortly after, I met my partner, Aga, who was facilitating psychedelic ceremonies. And she kind of brought me into that space. And I discovered that the medicine could actually access and amplify and utilize all the tools and the skills that I had accumulated in the decade of my exploration. And then from there, I also developed a men's coaching program. Then we got certified in breathwork, trauma-informed facilitations, started learning more about the science of um, the nervous system and how trauma is processed. And then our, our practice just grew from there. So this is what I do for a living now. This is this is my whole life. So there's psychedelic ceremonies, there's breathwork, there's coaching, and then there's other offerings that are starting to bloom and flourish now as well. So all in all, it's been about 16 years of conscious pursuit of these spaces. Wow, what a journey. And kind of getting a little bit at the origin there, you had mentioned that, you know, specifically your journey with altered states didn't necessarily start with psychedelics. You had this experience of, I think ego dissolution maybe wasn't the terms that you used, but you felt like your sense of self was uh, maybe fragmenting a bit or dissolving. You had this heightened experience, this altered, maybe it was an altered state of some sort. I'm curious to know at the time, like how did you contextualize that? And now looking back at it, how do you contextualize it? And what is if there's any difference between those two? Sure. Yeah. Well, there's a few things that led to that. It didn't just happen out of the blue. I was already contemplating the interconnectivity of all things. What's the sequencing? So at first I was just pursuing self-development and I was in a financial services company who was really emphasizing leadership development and playing around with the concept of the secret. For those of you who haven't heard of The Secret, it's it's kind of a framing around manifestation, how to manifest reality by getting into the feeling state and assuming that it has already taken place as a way of magnetizing that experience. And so I was already exploring that. But as I was diving into that concept, I had a, a really interesting moment where I decided one day to try it. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to manifest myself a cup of coffee 
and I'm not going to tell anyone and I'm not going to ask for it, but someone is going to buy me coffee. And it ended up happening throughout that day. And as I'm holding my cup of coffee being like, whoa, okay. So if I participated in this, that means that my intentions are influencing the thoughts and the behaviors of other humans, which just blew my mind. And I started experiencing all things, this web of life as one interconnected organism. And then I started asking questions of, okay, well, what's the limit on this? You know, if there's people who have cured incurable diseases just with the power of their consciousness and their stories of people who can survive years without food, and then that leads into yogic philosophy, these yogis who have these these powers, these siddhis of being able to like dematerialize the body or rematerialize, all of these magical abilities started to make logical sense to me if we developed this capacity. And it was at that juncture that the people in financial services started thinking I was crazy, <laughs> which confused me because I'm like, what are you talking about? This is the thing that we're <laughs> trying to practice. You know, this is where it leads. But that was like a juncture for me. And then when I had LSD for the first time, I had watched this film. Some people listening to this may have seen it. You may have seen it called What the Bleep Do We Know? You ever heard of that one? No, I don't think so. So it's kind of like a hybrid between like a documentary and a fictional story that is exploring all these aspects of quantum physics and how it relates to a new paradigm paradigm of perceiving and experiencing reality. So I saw that film when I was on LSD <laughs> and it felt like I was receiving the information directly. And there was some beautiful experiences there mm -hmm. that led me to a book called the Celestine prophecy, which is a, a fictional story, but it talks about these, these secrets or these principles that can help connect us to the invisible energetic nature of reality. And I don't remember them all, but one of the ones that I was following, which is to follow synchronicity, that was what I was implementing when I was in Guatemala and traveling. So I was listening to intuitive synchronistic impulses and following them as how I traveled. And I was also exploring things like Reiki and energy work. And I was just like, a newborn. I'm like, give me everything. I don't know what's real. And and I was so I was absorbing a lot. That eventually led me to the top of a mountain at a Mayan temple with a Mayan elder and some a group of people holding ceremony up there because it was recently given back to the town at the base of the mountain called Rabinal. So we were holding ceremony up there for a few days and I was receiving Reiki at the top of the temple. And that's when I had this massive expansion of consciousness that kind of, it wasn't a fragmentation of identity. It was an expansion of my sense of self. So mm -hmm. I was on this temple and I was looking around on top of a mountain. So I have this huge view and I could feel everything that I could see in the same way as I can feel my body right now from the vantage point of my individuated self. So that was still there. There was still a sense of I-ness, but it was expanded to include many other things beyond this individual, the individual field of my body. That's what was so confusing. It's like, where does self end and an other begin if, if both are part of self? That was what was confusing for me. 
And so when I came back, that became the focus of my explorations. I needed to understand who I really am and what reality really is. And that led me to Kriya Yoga, which is a comprehensive yogic path, lots of deep meditation, pranayama techniques, accessing non-ordinary states of consciousness through the interiorized channels of being intimately connected with subtle life force. And then that carried me away throughout my 20s. So it was a whole sequence of events Mm -hmm. that unfolded. And that's kind of the nature of my whole story, which what ultimately ended up bringing me to facilitate psychedelics. It was just synchronistic unfoldings that led me to where I'm at right now that kind of built on top of one another over a long period of time. Mm. Thank you. When you put it like that, it it feels very linear and it feels even in some ways, maybe simple, but I'm going to assume that there was some aspects of that that were really difficult or really challenging. Like if your whole perception of yourself changes and now you need to under, get to the bottom of like the fundamental nature of reality and, and this, you know, the distinction between you and the world and the, the boundary there. I'm curious to know if that was um, challenging for you. And and if so, like, how did you, how did you get through that? How did you steer the ship through these uncertain waters? Dude, it was brutal. <laughs> it's fucking horrible for <laughs> quite a few years. There's so little guidance and support. Yeah. I couldn't find the spaces that could actually support those explorations and felt like a fish out of water in society. I didn't know how to relate to people anymore. I had no professional passions, but I still had to work to make money. I didn't know how to relate to my family anymore. Part of the yogic traditions, or at least the ones that I was involved in at the ashram that I was at, Part of their teachings, it's not a rule, but they suggest that you don't share your most meaningful spiritual experiences Mm. with other people because that kind of dilutes its potency and invites the interpretation of another person's consciousness onto that experience. So I wasn't sharing about my spiritual experiences and I didn't care about the superficial stuff. So I didn't know how to interact with anyone. I didn't have any passions. I didn't have any clear guidance at all. And so I was wandering. I was just wandering around trying to figure out where where to place myself and mm. was lonely and depressed, but also spiritually inspired. It was a really rough period of time. And even after I had that initial spiritual experience and came back and didn't know how to relate to the world anymore, when I left the job and sold all my stuff and left my relationship, that was... My plan was to buy a one way, one-way ticket to India. Why India? I don't know, because that's where you go <laughs> to find all the enlightened people. <laughs> but as it was leading up to the to the journey, I freaked out and had all these voices inside, like, what am I doing? I'm just tossing away my entire life to launch into something. I don't even know what I'm looking for or where to find it. And so I actually I turned away from that impulse and I didn't go to India, but then that my path was already set. I couldn't go back to that job. My relationship was already dissolved and there there was no repair possible there. And I didn't have any possessions. So I was alone mm-hmm. in Calgary, not in India with no direction. And so I just started looking for meditation groups because I needed to start somewhere. And I ended up finding a self-realization fellowship chapel about 10 minutes away from my house. And as soon as I walked in, 
I saw the gurus on the altar and there was instant recognition on a soul level of this is what I've been looking for my entire life and I didn't even know it. So as soon as I found that, immediately I knew that that's what I wanted to pursue. So I had the desire to be a monk as soon as I walked in there. It took some time before I could actually go do that. And then when I didn't become a monk and was back in Canada, I was back to square one again in, the, in that same place, hmm. struggling to figure out where to place myself. So I can't really tell you how specifically I navigated it because it was really challenging. It was almost like I was just, I was drowning and I was trying to get little sips of air. And it was the little sips of air that kept me going until finally something clicked. And the thing that clicked also happened synchronistically. Mm-hmm. I, I found about, I found out about this program in a community called Ananda, which was a very progressive teaching program. So it was an education program that incorporated some of the teachings of Yogananda. And I was like, oh, maybe I can like insert myself into a new paradigm education system. And so I went to the community to go check out that program, wasn't interested at all. It was very much a startup program, very poorly formed. There was only like three people there checking out the program, wasn't drawn to it. But there was another program happening there called Creativity and Consciousness. And so I signed up for that just because it sounded interesting and it completely changed my life. Because what that program did was it gave me an avenue to explore and express the living energies inside of me and to build a bridge of connection with other people without identifying as it, without identifying as the feelings or the emotions, using artistic mediums as channels to explore and express living energies. And so that started resolving a lot of things that I had been carrying for years, gave me an avenue to explore and express it and then connect with other people through those bridges. That's what inspired me to come back to life. Mm. We did some really powerful mask work, which was very shamanic, of actually inhabiting archetypal force and embodying it and expressing from that place. And I was fascinated by that practice because it it was kind of similar to that spiritual experience I had where I still had a tangible sense of myself, but there was another force that was flowing through that extended beyond my individual identity. So I wanted to explore that. Moved here to Vancouver to pursue acting more as an art rather than a career. And then I went to go get certified in transformational art because it was so healing for me. I wanted to start offering it to other people. And then that grew into the offerings that I'm doing now. So yeah, these little breadcrumb trails, it's not as though it was just like uplifting and inspiring all the way through. It was kind of me stumbling and bumbling my way, hoping that I would be led to something meaningful, but it was almost a decade of really, really struggling. I was very interiorized, had a lot of social anxiety, a lot of loneliness, a lot of depression. But for me, there was no other option. Like I couldn't just go and get a nine to five job and sink back into a routine that wasn't satisfying for me anymore. I was looking for something. Mm-hmm. And that slowly revealed itself over time through a lot of hardship. Mm-hmm. Wow, incredible story. And there's so many different pieces that I would love to to go down. But I want to first, yeah, ask you a question about, you mentioned this like force that was flowing through you in that spiritual experience. I'm curious to know if you have any idea now 
about what form that force takes. Like, did every you, form. Do you think every form takes every form? That's that's the secret. Do you think that <laughs> could you would you say that that was full presence, a form of like being fully present? I don't think I'd use those words. I don't, yeah. I honestly don't know what words I would use to describe that kind of experience mm. because that was the only time I had ever experienced that. I haven't experienced since it was a rapid expansion of consciousness in every direction, almost like it was a literal sphere that was just shooting out in all directions throughout mm -hmm. space. And anything that was within that field was felt and recognized as an aspect of self. And it just kept going and going and going and going and going infinitely. There was no end to it. Interesting. Yeah. As you're sharing this experience, I'm trying to relate to my, a similar experience that I think I had when I was younger as well. And in a similar way, like an experience that served as the foundation for my spiritual path, really, it was a, a experience that I, in the same way, like wouldn't have been able to maybe categorize at the time, but have later attempted to contextualize and and recognize that, yeah, there was there was this expansion and and this drastic like drastic expression of like merging or like I mean part of me wants to use the word full presence, but there was this aspect of all sensations beco becoming like distilled down to just the sensations. Like a lot of time in our day to day life, we kind of put form on things, right? Like we label things and we walk through the world as a as an entity that recognizes certain objects but there was this formlessness that almost took place where the boundaries between objects like dissolved and like you say there's just like instead of looking at objects you're you're just receiving light and i don't say you like I, that's actually me like that that's what i was experiencing and i'm not sure if that resonates with you or if that was similar to your experience but i can't help but feel like there's some similarities between the an experience that i had and the one that you're sharing so i find that really interesting and I really appreciate that you you share the reality of the fact, which is the struggle that you had. I think a lot of time, like the spiritual path is sometimes glamorized by certain people. And a lot of people don't hear about <laughs> this part that happens first. And like you said, it's almost a decade of like not wandering. It didn't sound like you're wandering for a decade. It sounded to me like if I heard you correctly, you're wandering maybe for a few years after that experience. But eventually you started to find these pieces through synchronicity you started to come to a knowing that you were on the right path, but like that took a very long time. And, and the whole time you're building this new foundation for yourself. Uh, would you say that that is true? Like, does that accurately reflect what you're sharing? Well, maybe I'll clarify what I mean by wandering because I do mean wandering. And there's this quote that I think my aunt sent me like 10 years ago or so that she felt described to me and it resonated and I don't know who said it, maybe someone who's listening to this knows, but not all wanderers are lost, was the quote. And one of the reasons why I use that word is when I went into the mask work in the creativity and consciousness program, that archetypal force that ended up forming itself in my awareness and to just frame how we were working with these masks, the whole process of having it formed was done in silence. And then the whole class would come and drum and rattle and sing as the teacher popped it off and presented it to you like this being had just been born. And then we would, we would sit with the masks and listen to them to see how they wanted to be 
designed. So we would add color and additional texture to it based on the impressions that we were receiving. Then we found images that represented, you know, the space that they inhabit. We found music that was resonant with that energy. We created like an outfit and a wardrobe until they became this fully realized being. And I was dreaming about this being this force it was it was like cycling through my awareness it was the main thing that was flowing through me and what was revealed as i was working with this mask was that it was the archetype of the wanderer and it was like the middle point of like a three-stage evolution of this force the first is the orphan feeling displaced and alone homeless without a family and then that transitions into the wanderer you could also use seeker He's wandering, he's seeking something, and maybe that's fully formed and maybe it's not. Again, it's it's largely about these breadcrumb trails that are being left without me actively pursuing anything. I was just listening to small impulses kind of guiding me forward and ultimately what that archetype leads to in my experience of this mask work was the witness. The witness who is fully inhabiting and present with all of life without identifying with any of the faculties or forces of the human experience and yet in deep intimate contact with them. So that middle ground where I was at for almost a decade, it was about seven years or so, there, mm -hmm. there was definitely an act of seeking, but there wasn't clarity exactly on what I was mm -hmm. seeking or how to get it. I was just constantly trying to listen to the impulses and hoping that would lead me to where I needed to be, but I didn't even know where that was. Right. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. It's, it's such a stark contrast to think about maybe how the trajectory that your life could have gone on <laughs> had you not had this experience and started to focus on those breadcrumbs. It's just a whole different way of, of living, right. And a different way of tuning into your internal compass. Mm -hmm. I always like to say that I, I like to follow my excitement in life. Like if I'm really excited about something, I take, I treat that as a good opportunity to, to move towards it. Obviously, I think excitement is maybe a little bit more valuable than some other underlying kind of currents that we can tune into. But nonetheless, like, I think that's, yeah, it's really fascinating that just to think about how there are different timelines, right? And how different of a path you, you might have been on without that experience. Who knows, right? Yeah, it was pretty um, unconventional. Do you, have a, an, yeah, do you have a name for that experience? Like, do, did you, the spiritual experience that you had of your self-expanding? I don't actually. I've never tried to name it. Interesting. Okay. Do you have one for well, the one that you went through? Not really. Not that I came up with. I, I came across a, a term online called Satori, which is a term for a, an experience. They, they, I think it translates to sudden enlightenment, but I don't know if that really is what I experienced. Like it's just it's just one term that I came across that kind of seemed to point towards what I might have experienced. But that's just in one tradition. I think in one religion, I think maybe it's a Buddhist term. I, I actually forget off the top of my head, but there's no term that I came up with myself. I just recognized, like in the moment, I actually didn't recognize that experience as anything that I was familiar with. And it was only after a couple of years of like, again, similar to you, like following the breadcrumbs, following intuition, getting to a point where I could then have any sort of language to be able to uh, articulate what that experience meant to me, but yeah, I don't have a mm -hmm. name for it. Mm -hmm. Deus, I wanted to ask you another question. Sure. I wanted to ask you 
you know, your work, a lot of the work that you do focuses around accelerated evolution. And I was curious if you could go a little bit more into some of the yeah different aspects of the work that you do, starting with that term itself. What does that term mean to you? So I'm going to make a distinction here. Accelerated evolution is a combination of different tools, techniques, methodologies, and mindsets that I'm certified in through one of my teachers, Satyan Raja. So it's a very specific modality. But as a concept, accelerated evolution is fundamentally about understanding the the innate intelligence flowing in and through all of life, including our own emotional experiences, our mental movements, our relationships that are trying to catalyze some sort of evolutionary process. Understanding the nature of the intelligence embedded with all, within all of life and learning how to work with it to achieve those evolutionary movements across all levels. So there's lots that could be said about it, but Essentially, that's what it is. Do you, do you know what the concept of emergence is? You ever heard that before? I don't think so. So I mean, I've heard there, of emergent properties. Yeah. Maybe so, that's similar. Yeah, there's a man named Daniel Schmachtenberger, and he gave a, a talk at Emergence Festival, I believe, on emergence. And I highly recommend any listeners to go check it out. I've listened to it a whole bunch of times where he explains this concept and I'll be paraphrasing him as I try to explain my understanding of it. So emergence is this mystical consequence, <laughs> you could say, of two individual forces that have unique qualities coming together in synergistic relationship to give birth to something that has qualities that aren't present in either of the individual components. And so on a basic level, you could give this example of water, where hydrogen and oxygen come together in a synergistic way, and it gives birth to water, which has qualities that neither hydrogen or oxygen has. So the question there is, where do these qualities come from? Where do those qualities come from? If they weren't already present in the individual forces, this is deeply connected to the intelligent evolution of the body, the mind, the psyche, the energy, the spiritual self. There's some sort of intimate synergistic relationship that needs to be established that actually changes the entire system into something that it wasn't before. And the experience of this can change drastically. And oftentimes it's almost more like remembering then the creation of something new. But when there's an integration of polarized forces or charge or painful past experiences, then it catalyzes an emergent process, which leads to the evolution of who and what you know yourself to be and how you relate to the rest of the world. This is what accelerated evolution is doing, but in very practical, very specific, very targeted ways so that you can actually look at okay, I'm feeling distress in this area or this pattern keeps unfolding. And you can actually excavate where that's coming from and what it means and how to work with it in a way that supports your evolutionary process rather than defaulting back into established ways of being. 
So this can be applied through psychedelics. This can be applied through coaching. This can be applied through breathwork. It's having a fundamental understanding of how reality works. Thank you. Hey, you bring up breathwork and that's what actually came to mind when you when you started talking about emergence is because I remember that when I first learned about it, it was actually in biology class. I think we were taught that, you know, your lungs themselves are like emergent. They have emergent properties because the cells that make up your lungs don't necessarily help you breathe on their own, but composed in this structure, which has uh, again evolved over time through the, you know, creative life force of the universe. It creates this emergent property of breathing. And I think that's maybe a, a fitting example too, because you are a man of many skills. And one of those is you facilitate breathwork experiences. And so I wanted to, that's actually an, the next topic I want to ask you about, which was NUMA breathwork, because this is a specific type of breathwork that I feel like maybe is not as well understood for the average person. I'd love to just hear uh, you share a little bit more about NUMA breathwork. I, I myself don't know too much about it. I'd love to know more. How is that? Yeah. How, what is its significance in your practice? And, and how in general, maybe does breath contribute uh, in your opinion to like healing and personal transformation? Breath is the most powerful tool that we have access to as humans. You can do anything with breath. You can change your physiological state, your emotional state. You can use it to guide and direct life force. You can use it as a catalyst for regulating the nervous system. You it's, it's the, the golden key. And more and more as time goes on, I'm emphasizing the exploration of the breath much more than psychedelics because it catalyzes the same process. But the difference is when you're using your breath, you are learning how to catalyze and to facilitate your own healing process. You're cultivating that as a skill and all the different layers that are involved in that. And you have your foot on the gas pedal. If you want to go for more intensity, you speed it up. If it's becoming overwhelming, you can slow it down. There's a lot more agency in that exploration, but you are also still offering yourself up to a force that you're not in control of and that you might not understand. It's very, very similar to working with psychedelics. Although when you take psychedelics, you're strapped in and you're in for the ride. And maybe you haven't cultivated the skill or the capacity to be with the intensity that can arise in those spaces, depending on the medicine you're working with and the dose that you're working with. Because there's a reason why those barriers and those blockages, why those defense mechanisms are there. They're there to protect the psyche from something that's potentially overwhelming. So the preparation and the integration to those experiences are really about how to work with the intelligent forces that are trying to facilitate your own evolutionary process. And it is extremely uncomfortable. You've got to work through many layers of everything that's been avoided everything that you've tucked away and hidden, those those will come up to be felt. So tying this into breath work, pneuma breath is a type of conscious connected breath work, which is like an umbrella term for a very simple, easy to practice breath technique, which is ideally with a relaxed open jaw, but you can do this through your nose as well. It's a vibrant inhale followed by a completely relaxed exhale with no pause in between, creates a cyclical breath. The inhales the sympathetic nervous system, ah, exhales the parasympathetic nervous system, and you're creating an unbroken wave of that breath. It does a whole bunch of different things. And there's a lot of different styles of breath that use this breath technique. So conscious connected breath work is not unique to NUMA. It's just utilizing that breath as a key to start unlocking the system. 
And so every style of breathwork has a slightly different lens on what the focus is and the tools and the skills that are being applied from the facilitators to help support people's processes. So the founder of Numa Breathwork, his name is Trevor Yellick. He actually created Numa Somatics. And I'll go into that in a second because it's connected to Numa Breath. His teacher was, was Judith Kravitz. Judith Kravitz's teacher was Stanislav Graf. Stanislav Graf came up with holotropic breathwork. That was originally developed to help catalyze non-ordinary states of consciousness similar mm-hmm. to LSD. It was not a psychotherapeutic process. It was very high intensity for long periods of time. It wasn't about therapeutic processing. It was about accessing states similar to LSD. And it became more therapeutic through Ju- Judith Kravitz and even more so through Trevor, who created this very comprehensive training program of trauma-informed facilitation, nervous system regulation, body-centered psychotherapeutic tools and techniques, and also weaving in ritual and ceremony. So it's a very comprehensive approach to working with the breath. And as the levels progress through the trainings, it actually became less and less focused on the breath and more about how to work with what is activated through the breath. So we're not even rigidly attached to the breath technique. We're using it as a way of turning the system on. And for those of you who have never done breath work before, just very quick entry point into this is as we move through life, we get activated by potential threat, especially when we're young. And if we can't fight the threat off or escape, which is that fight or flight response, we have all this activation in our system. Then our system goes into its next defense response, which is freeze. And this numbs the whole system, the sedates sensation so that you don't feel pain so that you can carry on because you can't escape from the pain. So you're just going to numb it. And we carry that around with us for the rest of our lives. And that actually turns into disease in the body with triggers in the psyche, patterns, coping mechanisms. All of these things are essentially sourced from painful past experiences that haven't been fully felt and haven't been fully integrated. And so if you're to look at this mobilized energy that freezes like this frozen block, as you're alternating between the inhale, mobilization, exhale, relaxation, these frozen blocks start to thaw and they actually start to turn back on in the system because they don't just disappear. They don't just evaporate and you're healed. They actually have to reactivate in the system so that they can discharge, so that they can actually be released. And the process for doing that is to feel and express them fully without trying to shift or change or control them. You're relinquishing control over to the feeling to be processed. Your body knows what to do to heal in the most effective, efficient way possible when it's not being prevented from doing so. So breathwork starts to turn the system on and then it becomes a practice of allowing those movements in deep contact with your system so that you're not overwhelming yourself, but you can stay in contact with what wants to move in a new way. And then you have the support of a facilitator who can invite different experiments and investigations and ways of supporting and encouraging to help facilitate that process. But they're not imposing their own will on you. They're observing and supporting the innate intelligence within your own body, which you're accessing through the breath. And so as something starts rising up, like grief, this is an example I often give, it's going to change the way that you breathe. It's going to fragment your breath and it will turn into something like... (laughs) 
So we're not going to push that feeling away so that we can maintain the breath. We're going to let that feeling fully rise up, fully inhabit the system, fully express itself. And then when that comes to resolution, you come back to the breath. It's the ground that you're standing on. It's starting to teach you how to regulate your own system by opening all, all those Pandora's boxes up, but in a very controlled way. And so breathwork is amazing preparation for psychedelics. It's incredible integration. And it's an extremely powerful practice just on its own because it accomplishes all the same things as psychedelics. But again, like I was saying before, it's teaching you how to facilitate your own healing process from within. It's putting you into direct contact with the intelligence embedded in your own body and breath and learning how to surrender to it and to go through a healing process. In that model that you just outlined or that framework of breath, would you say that the self-expression piece is the most challenging to develop skill at or practice with as opposed to the technicalities of actually doing the breath? Or like, how would you kind of relate those two pieces together? It completely depends on the person. Completely depends. Like some people are really blocked around using their voice, for example. Some people are extremely desensitized and they don't even know what they're feeling. And they're going through a process of resensitizing. Now, other people are completely overwhelmed with their feelings all the time and they're learning how to regulate, you know, or actually slow things down and be held and supported by another. Some people find it really easy to be in their body and to move it, but their voice is closed. Other people are able to make sound, but their body is super rigid. It's completely unique to each person. And this is part of the investigations. It's like, where are the barriers? Where are the blockages? Can we approach those edges? And can we soften a little bit to see what spontaneous movements want to occur without trying to control it? Fascinating. Yeah, thanks for outlining the lineage as well of the breath is important. I mean, you mentioned the lineage yourself in a sense of like who you've learned from and where the actual practice of NUMA came from. Cause I know that was part of the question was NUMA breathwork in particular. And so yeah, it's fascinating to just hear about, uh, yeah, I didn't know that it kind of spawned in a sense from an inspiration from holotropic. Cause that, that is the one main, like I guess psychedelic breathwork that I have been familiar with. I haven't done a lot of it myself, but I've, I've heard of it and understand it to be something that Stangroff actually was kind of forced to create when psychedelics became illegal, right? He kind of mm-hmm. had to turn his practice elsewhere. And and so comes along holotropic breathwork, which is quite incredible. So yeah, it's interesting that here that you've described Numa breathwork is almost like a more therapeutic version of that. Is that right? Yeah, correct. And does that come from the fact mainly that it's more trauma-informed? I think it's a combination of being a trauma-informed approach and utilizing body-centered psychotherapeutic tools and techniques in the facilitation of the process. Okay. Do you mind elaborating on that second piece a little bit more for people that are maybe curious? Like what what does that really mean and what does that look like? Sure. Body-centered psychotherapeutic process? Yeah. Okay. So there's, there's basically two approaches to therapy. There's what's called a top-down approach which is where you're talking about the story and the memories and the thoughts. And you're kind of like trying to trace your way down into the core through the mind. It's very, very slow and might not even get at the core because you're working with what's spawning from the core. Take a lot of time to weave through that. And it's not really investigating the body so much. You're going through the mind. And then you have body-centered psychotherapeutic methods, which are 
which have kind of emerged quite recently, just over the last few decades, as we've become aware of this thing that we call trauma and how it's held in the body and how it affects the nervous system. So you have slipping my mind right now, the trauma-informed therapy, waking the tiger by Peter Levine, somatic experiencing. So somatic experiencing is a really great example of body-centered psychotherapy. Instead of talking about the issues and the memories and the stories, you're actually tuning in deeply with the sensations in the body. You're kind of zooming in on them, allowing them to be there and watching them as they start to grow in intensity or move or shift or change. And you're listening to if there's any spontaneous movements that the body wants to follow, because this is where all the energy is being stored. It's directly in the body. Your body is your subconscious mind. Everything that you're holding can be found in the body and through patterns of breath. So body-centered psychotherapeutic tools and techniques is working off of a holistic model operating under the assumption that every physical sensation has some sort of psycho-emotional component to it. So there's some kind of emotion there. There's some kind of thought there. There's some kind of memory there, but you're accessing it through the body. And what's important here is you don't even need to know what it's connected to through your conscious mind. You're just accessing the energy directly and you're allowing it to discharge out of the system. Sometimes clarity arises, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you have no idea what is being released or why, but oftentimes you do. It's a some sort of feeling that's been held for a very long time. So it's much, much faster. It's much more direct, but you're still approaching it in a therapeutic way. So you're listening to many different layers of the being as you're working with them with the awareness that Tying this into what I was saying before, that the defense mechanisms that we've erected are there for a reason. They're there to protect us. And as we start dissolving those, we're going into sensitive territory. So rather than trying to push through or change or get rid of anything, we're opening up sensation, we're resensitizing, and we're holding it lovingly so that it can finally be felt and and expressed. And that has incredible benefits across the whole spectrum of someone's life that is psychotherapeutic. So pneumosomatics and pneuma breathwork uses a lot of body-centered psychotherapeutic tools and techniques to explore the body in different ways, to explore emotion and energy in different ways, and to help facilitate its movements in different ways, rather than talking about it. We're just going right into where it's being held and allowing it to move. And that takes some practice and some exploration and a lot of sensitivity as we're going into those vulnerable places. Fascinating. I was about to ask you how that process connects back to what we are talking about earlier about accelerated evolution, just personal evolution in general. So you kind of already answered the question there. And yeah, you also, I was also going to ask you how you specifically guide people through those sensitive states to put it in your words, right? Those are sensitive territories that people are brought to. And so, yeah, curious, maybe just to kind of tie a few of those concepts together, we, we kind of skipped over trauma-informed care a little bit to talk about this, this other piece that you were sharing about, but connecting to the trauma-informed care, like how, yeah, how, how do you use that in your everyday practice when you're guiding people through these states and and what, what do you think, especially with maybe plant medicines and psychedelics is that is kind of one of the focuses that we have, but like all these other altered states that you have mentioned already that can be really powerful induced by breath work. What are some 
yeah, what does being trauma informed maybe mean to you? Or like, how how how, do, how can you share a little bit about how you guide people through those sensitive territories? The big question. What does it mean to be trauma informed? So I could answer that in a bunch of different ways. I mean, one is just having a basic understanding of how the nervous system works, mm-hmm. how to co-regulate with someone, how to meet them from a place of compassionate curiosity without any agenda and infinite patience mm-hmm. and without identifying them as any of the feelings or expressions that are coming through. And to hold them in that place of compassionate curiosity. So that's one element of it. And then the the art history of facilitating that from a trauma-informed place is to help create a space that has the safety and rapport required to access vulnerable or threatening sensations. To feel safe enough to be able to go into threatening sensations. And to be held through that because often trauma, which is just painful past experiences that haven't been fully processed. It's not the thing that happened to us. It's what we're holding from those experiences and that we hold those experiences oftentimes because we didn't have the support that we Mm -hmm. needed at that time. So there's some sort of failure of love, some sort of broken relationship that led to trauma, which is an energy being locked in the system instead of moved through. And so a lot of the repair actually happens in relationship to be with someone going into something that feels vulnerable, that they've hidden for fear of rejection and judgment and ridicule and condemnation and pain and all those ways. And to be with them through that experience from a place of loving, compassionate, curious support that in itself is a healing process, regardless of the nature of the, emotion or feeling like people can have as many blocks around joy and pleasure and ecstasy and excitement as they can towards grief and pain and fear and all those other things we cap one feeling we cap them all and so it's a full radical acceptance of the other being seeing and trusting and knowing their innate goodness and holding to them holding their identity in that place and then allowing the experiences from the past which are kind of like it's a part of you that's frozen in time and to be with the little one that mm-hmm. is coming out through that feeling from a place of motherly or fatherly love and support. So this, this is to me like the essence of trauma-informed facilitation, how that unfolds in each session com- differs widely. Mm-hmm. Just like what I was saying, like people struggle with different areas of feeling and expression. So you have to meet each person in a completely different way. And this is probably the biggest thing that I've learned from my teacher, Trevor, is that I can have all of these maps, I can have all of these tools, I can have all of these frameworks, but when we get into the experience, I don't actually know. There's no way for me to know what that person is experiencing. I'm making educated guesses at best. And so it's my responsibility to do my best to attune deeply to them, to stay curious, to ask good questions, and to be open to a living relationship of feedback 
So I'm deeply listening rather than making assumptions, asking questions, helping them feel loved and supported, seen, heard, and understood. And then the other aspect of this that I wanted to mention is understanding that through a trauma-informed approach, you got to recognize that there's what's called a window of tolerance that all of us have. So we have a comfort zone that we've learned to operate in. And as soon as our feelings cross a certain threshold, the defense mechanisms turn on to try to manage that energy. And so when we're going into a space like psychedelics or breathwork or therapeutic processes, you are actually going into the edgy territory of discomfort, but you're not going beyond your window of tolerance because if you overload the system and it actually becomes overwhelmed, even in a safe and supportive space, it will reactivate its defenses to try to protect itself. This is what people call being re-traumatized. It's not re-traumatized really. It's just a reinforcing of the defense mechanisms and the fears that are already present because you've crossed the window of tolerance. So this is a big benefit of something like breathwork because you're learning about your own window of tolerance as you're maintaining contact with your experience. If someone starts getting overwhelmed and they start dissociating, the practice is then to slow the breath way down so that you can maintain contact with what just showed up rather than disconnecting from it. So we're not aiming for anything in particular. We're being deeply attuned with the intelligence of the body and honoring that above all else from a place of compassionate curiosity. It's fascinating. Thanks for going deeper into some of the nuances around the process that you take. I wanted to bring up music. I've had the privilege of sitting in a ceremony with you and Aga together. And I think one of the beautiful things that is, I'd say pretty unique about, about the work that you do is, is your, the way that you combine music in your ceremony. I think it's, you know, it's not necessarily, it's something that's tradition for a lot of communities. And it's something that a lot of people are, are some people bring in. But it's also something that I recognize in a lot of spaces and, and also in the evolving clinical world, that's not really, the emphasis is not really put on it as much, but I feel like you and Aga do a really wonderful job at put, not only putting emphasis on it, but like really embodying the musician inside each of you. Hmm. And so I would love to hear a little bit more about what you feel like the role of music is in the work that you do. Hmm. This would be a great question for Aga. <laughs> yeah, she's she's in a one-year sound healing program right now. And it's, this has been a big part of her journey is unlocking her voice, but she's learning like the science and the quantum physics of sound right now. I don't have that information. And so I can only share my experience. So one thing that I'll share, everything is vibration. Everything is vibration. And you have receptor sites all throughout your body that are designed to receive sound and that informs the functionality of your system. It creates the internal environment that helps to inform the behavior of all of the functions of your body. It affects your brain state, which changes what's going on on a physical, mental, emotional level. And this isn't new information. I mean, you can listen to different tracks to change your brain state. If you do that while laying on a bed that's vibrating at that same frequency as you're listening to, it ripples through the tissues of your body. So sound is a very profound technology, just as the breath, to help inform and influence 
and affect our system in different ways. And if it's being used in, in different healing modalities, you can use it to like target certain frequencies or certain systems or even certain organs, but in a more shamanic setting, because in our journeys, especially the high dose journeys, a lot of what we do is guiding through sound. There's a lot of hands-on facilitation as well, which changes based on what people need. But one thing I'll share about the songs that we share is mm-hmm. we sing medicine songs from around the world, a bunch of different lineages. Some of them have come through us. Some of them we've learned from others in song circles or direct transmission. Some of them we've actually just learned off of Spotify. I've reached out to some artists that whose music I've been really fond of to ask permission to share their songs and they've all been really gracious. But one thing I can share about these medicine songs is they have a spirit. And this might sound foreign to people who have never communed with the energy of a song before, but there is an intelligence embedded within that song that encapsulated expression of vibratory frequency which you could say is what all of us are we're like a condensed encapsulated combination of vibrational frequencies this is what a song is so there's a living intelligence within that song and they all carry different frequencies and so they have different personalities they have different functions you could even say they have different desires i've had the experience where I wanted to sing a song and I'm trying to draw that song up. And the response was, it didn't want to be sung. It was like resisting me and I couldn't recall the song and it started like closing up my throat. There was like an active resistance to that song coming through. And I've also had the other experience of there's a song that wants to come through and it takes over my body and it opens my throat and it starts causing me pain if I don't sing it. There's an intelligence within this transformational field that wants to flow through. And some of the language of that living intelligence is song. And so I have a relationship with each of the songs that we sing in ceremony space, and they have different application potentials. Some of them stir up discomfort. Some of them soothe and calm. Some of them help to facilitate cleansing processes. Otherwise, other ones are like integrating polarities of different forms. So they all have a different function. It's like, um, you know, it's almost like a surgeon pulling out different tools for, for different tasks. And that is being informed largely by attunement to an energetic field and listening for guidance from an intelligence that transcends my own intellectual understanding. So it's having like a living relationship with these invisible forces that have intelligence embedded within them which is connected to accelerated evolution like what i was talking about there's an intelligence that's trying to facilitate an evolutionary process if i can give myself over to it as an instrument for that energy it can flow through in many different ways and sound and song is one of them that's fascinating to think about the spirit of song and the propensity for some songs to want to be sung and some that maybe it's not their moment And I feel like there's probably some really interesting parallels to just vocal expression, even just in terms of conversations that we need to have in our lives, right? I feel like there's maybe something similar that happens with people who, again, you mentioned there's people that maybe are stuck here. There's certain conversations that they need to be having and they're not having them, right? Or there's Mm -hmm. certain things that they are saying that maybe they should not be saying. Mm -hmm. And I can actually give you a tangible, right? 
I can give you a tangible example of that. There's a lot of men, not exclusively men, but there's a lot of men who can't access their upper register of expression, mm. like, like that kind of thing. They won't go there because there's a lot of connotations with that. And then there's a lot of emotional experiences that came from that. There's a lot of judgments that are associated with that. And so there's different things that are contracting that territory of vibrational expression, which has a physical component. It has an emotional component. It has an energetic component. Might be connected to certain relationships or memories or experiences. And that's all connected to the contraction of that particular frequency flowing through expression. So not only are you suppressing the expression, you're actually suppressing the feeling, which is also serving as a buffer for the memories of what actually imprinted that defense mechanism in the first place. And this is why something like making sound can be such a powerful healing process because it unlocks that whole sequencing of blockages mm -hmm. through direct experience. It's putting you in contact with the sensation and giving it a channel to flow through finally, which means it activates through your feeling centers. Incredible. That is fascinating. Yeah, I I don't even think Zoom, I don't know. Did you actually go to the high register like when you went to do it? I did, yeah. My Zoom actually my, my audio actually cut out. Like oh really? <laughs> even Zoom had some trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Zoom has some trouble reaching the high registers too. So maybe Zoom needs to do some Numa breath work or something. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, thank you for speaking to to yeah some again some more of those nuances around vocal expression and and again like how music plays into your work. I did want to ask you about Aga since you brought her up. Like I'm very curious to know what it's like working together. I mean, I'm sure you know a lot of people say be careful working with your partner. I think working with your partner in in ceremony is probably a whole it, it's a whole new thing. And I mean, I can relate a little bit because I I do do that to some extent, not as much as you and Aga have done, right? Like I'm very much at the start of my journey, mm -hmm. but yeah, I'm very curious to know if you have any advice for other practitioners out there who are considering doing this, maybe mm -hmm. you might have some advice for them, or if, even if you just want to speak to your own experience. Who are considering working with their partners in psychedelic spaces? <laughs> yes. That's a bit of a niche territory there, but sure. It is, it is pretty niche. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do it. No, I'm kidding. It's been supremely beautiful. But I will share that the first couple of years were very challenging because as we first started working with the medicine, we were also very new in our relationship. And whatever it is that we're carrying, the shadow aspects, unintegrated aspects, biases, distortions that we're carrying, they make their way into the space. There's no way to separate it. And so whatever it was that was playing out in our relationship would show up in some way shape or form in the ceremony space and the first two years was like a rite of passage is like going through an inferno it's like a being forged into something we had to come into contact with a lot of our wounding in relationship power dynamics like there's a lot that came up and at the same time one of the reasons why it works so well between Aga and myself is because we were both approaching it with an investigative lens. If 
One book that I highly recommend to anyone is called Getting the Love You Want by Harville Hendricks. He's a man who spearheaded relational psychology. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because he, just to distill it down, to bring it back to my point, he describes three different stages to a relationship. The first is the honeymoon phase, where you are projecting upon the other abandoned aspects of self or what he calls the imago, which is the consolidation of your primary caregivers as you grew up. This is an mm. unconscious process. And so by being in an intimate relationship with them, you're actually reconnecting to the abandoned parts of yourself and you have a feeling of wholeness. And then that also comes with things like a feeling of timelessness and having known them forever, you know, like, oh, we probably had a past life together and all of these things. There's certain qualities to the honeymoon phase where you're not actually experiencing the other as they are, you're experiencing them as an idealized projection mm -hmm. of your own integrated psyche. And then when that starts to prove to be inaccurate, you know, maybe you start having conflicting desires around like the frequency of sex or you start things that you were originally attracted to suddenly start irritating you like there's certain things that start to happen that kind of like dissolve that false image that you had of them and that's when you go into the second stage of relationship this is called the power struggle this is where the defense mechanisms start turning back on and you actually start being reflections of each other's deepest wounding and you'll find that you're reciprocals in a lot of ways the my trigger is the opposite of her trigger. Like um, I probably don't even need to give examples. Anyone who's been in a relationship understands what I'm talking about. So you start triggering each other and then your defense mechanisms prevent you from actually finding resolution. Cause say my defense mechanism is to like, get the fuck out of there. I want to leave the room. And she's like really longing for deeper contact, but she's attacking me in order to try to get it. You know, it's like you, you play off each other in hurtful ways. Most relationships end there. Most mm. relationships never progress past that point. Either they find different ways to just submit to each other or they continue fighting. All, all the while with this background thought of like, you lied to me. You're not who I thought you were kind of thing. So this book, Getting the Love You Want, is about transitioning your relationship from the power struggle into what they call conscious relating, which is understanding that the function, the primary function of relationship is to help bring up your unresolved trauma to be resolved. Mm. And the psyche and the people we feel attracted to are direct reciprocals that will eventually catalyze that process. That's one of the functions of relationship rather than seeking like this eternal honeymoon phase to expect challenges to arise. So both Aga and I had an awareness an understanding of the nature of this process and that our wounding was coming up to be processed. It didn't make it easy. It was still very challenging, but we also had the support and the guidance from medicine and friends, mentors, teachers. We, to this day, we have our own spaces that we go into to process our own stuff. I'm in a one-year process with my teacher, Trevor, right now, where we had four in-person retreats. I go to teachers and space holders to help me in my continual healing process. And then we're coming together and actually working with each other as reflections 
deliberately to start unwinding those things. And it, it brought up a lot of challenge, but that actually strengthened our relationship and attunement. And at, at this point, working together is effortless. I know what her strengths are. She knows what my strengths are. I know what her insecurities are. She knows the same about me. We know how to balance our roles and responsibilities in a respectful way without diminishing the other or taking a superior position. We know when to defer over to the other to take the lead on something. It's a very effortless and easeful flow. And that took a few years to develop and an awareness to investigate the self, to humble oneself and to, to reveal my wounds to her, for her to reveal her wounds to me and to receive additional support outside of her relationship from a committed place understanding that, that was the nature of that's the purpose of relationship so the the understanding of each other as we actually are not as we want each other to be and learning how to love that in one another was amplified by the process of working together and I, I think anyone who attempts this will find this to be the case. You know, the more areas of your life that you are entangling in with your partner, the more it's going to amplify the triggering process. So unless you're actually willing to dive in and address those things from a place of compassionate curiosity, or at least a willingness and some degree of commitment, it, it might fracture your relationship in some really painful ways. But at the same time, it's through conflict and it's through the repair of that conflict that intimacy occurs. So it also has the potential for one of the deepest relationships you've ever experienced if both parties are willing to go through that process. I wonder how the divorce rate in North America would be different if everyone read that book. Oh, man. Or let alone if everyone planet. facilitated psychedelic experiences with their partner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's really powerful. Thank you for giving us a glimpse into, yeah, the different phases that you personally experienced uh, through the lens of that book, but like also in your own personal life with Aga and the work that you guys do. And yeah, it sounds like it's interesting to think about the ceremony as almost as a form of accountability for you. Like you, you want to also show up in these spaces as proper as you can. And like, as maybe I don't use the word pure, but you know, as maybe unaffected by like your own kind of personal stuff, right? You want to show up as like a empty or hollow bone. Maybe that's not the right term, mm -hmm. but maybe, mm -hmm. maybe it is. Yeah. I'm glad you brought right. that up actually, because this this was part of the challenge because we had different reflections and critiques of each other in those spaces, especially in the early years as we're getting to know each other and working through our shit. And it's really hard to be called out on your shit by your partner in a really vulnerable environment. I'm not saying that we would do this in the midst of ceremony, but as we're debriefing afterwards and offering each other reflections mm -hmm. and suggestions and criticisms, it is really hard to receive from your partner in that kind of way. But actually building that relationship of accountability and reflection without immediately going into defensiveness has been super helpful and I highly recommend you don't have to like if you're facilitating psychedelics, I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing it with your partner or your lover, but find someone, find someone to facilitate with. So there's some reliable source of reflection to hold you accountable in unexpected ways. It's so important because we get caught in our own myopic lens and we aren't aware of our own shadows. We need some kind of reflection. 
So that that would be something I would strongly encourage to find somebody to facilitate with who you can trust to offer reflections. Mm. That's great advice. Yep, having that relational component is so key and can be such a catalyst for growth. And also it's safer, arguably, yeah. for participants that if, yeah. if you are a facilitator from this perspective, right? It is in, in some in a lot of situations safer to have that at least you know, two facilitators supporting someone. Yeah. And then I agree. there's also that benefit of the masculine feminine too, that you guys yeah. both bring in. Yeah. I agree. Which is also really powerful, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm curious to step away being mindful of time here. I think we have time for a few more questions and I wanted to step back a little bit, kind of looking at the space as a whole, you know, you've been around now, like you said, on your own personal path for, for decades, and you've been facilitating plant medicine experiences for many years, a very experienced guide in the space. And, you know, I wanted to kind of just hear about a little bit about your opinion, like what you're seeing now, because a lot of things have changed in the psychedelic industry, if you want to call it that, or space in the last few years, a lot of things are changing really fast. And, you know, I think we could talk a little bit about some of the things you're excited about, but, but right now I'm really more curious to hear maybe about some of the things that you're concerned about, what are maybe what, what's one of the main things that kind of concerns you when you look around at the expansion of the psychedelic space? I know one thing that you've you've mentioned to me and you kind of alluded to earlier in our conversation was just like the overemphasis on psychedelics and something that you've spoken to before is like this aspect. Well, there's all these other tools and breathwork being one of those powerful ones that we can, we can look to first. We don't have to be rushing to the psychedelic. And, mm-hmm. and I think there, there's an issue of maybe the wrong sort of people having access to these things, but I'm curious, maybe aside from that, or if you want to go into that example deeper, like what are some of the big concerns that you're you're worried about at the moment, if any, with the expansion of the psychedelic space? Hmm. So there's a couple things. And everything that I say, I say with a grain of salt, because psychedelics have been supremely powerful for me in my life. They've been some of the the major catalysts for some of the biggest transformations that I've gone through. And so I don't want to diminish their value or importance. At the same time, I don't think our society has been equipped with the internal and external resources that have traditionally been present to support working with these medicines in healing ways. Like it's in, it's in more shamanic and indigenous communities that have historically used psychedelics, it's interwoven into the way that they live. And it's honored as a, as a being that they have a relationship with and they're in connection with each other. So they don't have like historically the the whole concept of integrating an experience is completely different because they're living in a community in a culture that actually supports the integration process through relational support. But in the world that we live in, which is so compartmentalized and and isolated and disconnected from nature and with each other and with the rest of life and how that's present with our own our, our own systems, all the holding patterns that I've been talking about over these the hour that we've been together, it's like we haven't developed the internal and the external resources to really capitalize on the potential of these 
medicines. They're allies, they're teachers, they're friends, they're supports, but they're not a magic pill. They're not a magic magic genie. You don't just go into a journey and say, hey, I want greater joy in my life. And then you go into this magical experience of supreme joy, and then you carry that forward throughout your rest of your life. That's not how a healing process works. Sure, you can have these really ecstatic and blissful, joyful experiences. And oftentimes they happen spontaneously and can be indescribably beautiful, but that's only one aspect of what occurs. That's more of a remembering process of who and what you actually are. In order to step into that, to fully inhabit it, to embody it, to live it through your life, you have to unwind all the things that are preventing that state. And that's the wounding. Those are the defense mechanisms. And there's many, many layers that have been built up over generations that we're all carrying. And so to go into these spaces is a risk. There's a very tangible risk for blasting open the doors of your psyche without a developed experiential understanding of what it means to go through a healing process. You have to purge out. You have to feel through everything that hasn't been felt. It's incredibly challenging, especially when you start going into the deeper core material. You start going into pre-verbal material, the things that created the foundational structure of how you perceive and experience reality before language was even formed. When you start tapping into that stuff, it's inherently overwhelming to the system. There's no way to prevent the overwhelm of the system. And if you go into the space knowing or not knowing that that's a potential, you're putting yourself at risk. And again, psychedelics aren't even needed. They're not necessary. They're there to help facilitate a process that's always trying to occur in your life in an amplified way. If you haven't developed the practice of resensitizing to uncomfortable feelings without shutting down or retaliating or trying to change them, you should probably practice that before you go in and amplify all your feelings a thousandfold. Might be a good idea to turn that into a practice so that you can learn how to open up in a gentler way. It might be a better approach to go into breathwork so you can start becoming embodied and learning what it feels like to reach the end of your window of tolerance so that you can pull it back, so that you can practice opening up feelings and expressions so that you can start cultivating it as a skill. I believe that healing is a skill. It's innate within us. We haven't, it's kind of been taught out of us. We have to relearn how to do it. But cultivating that as a skill, or at least as a hobby, <laughs> before you go into psychedelics, I think is, is really, really important. Because the world that we're living in right now, it requires a different approach. We don't have the community feedback. Like you go and sit with somebody for three days or for one night or whatever, and then you're off in your own world again, completely disconnected to from everybody who participated in that experience with you. That can be even more challenging. Like what I was mm -hmm. talking about with my spiritual experience and suddenly being in a world that I couldn't relate to anymore led me into seven years of a dark night of a soul. You know, it can it can completely disrupt your life if we have the proper support, if we lean into this as a life process, then it doesn't have to be so hard. It doesn't have to be so fragmented because 
we realize that we're not actually looking at an end goal. We're learning how to work with the intelligent healing process of life as a way of being. So unfortunately, in the societal structure that we're in, we do have to consider things like preparation. What are you implementing to prepare in a tangible way? And what are you implementing in order to integrate that, that experience? These have to be identified and implemented. What kind of support structures do you have available? If you don't have any, might be a good idea to go and build them so that you have some resources to access if you get into some territory that you don't know how to navigate, which is very possible. Mm -hmm. Do you trust the facilitators that you're with? Have you built a relationship with them? Do you trust them with your heart? Could you bear your soul to them and feel comfortable? These are all things that we need to consider in the absence of a community model that's integrated with a living relationship with the medicine. Mm. So it's dangerous territory, holds tremendous potential for healing, but it's not unique to psychedelics. And if you just like read a book or saw a documentary and you heard that it's like 20 years of psychotherapy and you're going in blind, I would encourage you to pause for a second to consider what else have you explored how are you approaching this? Are you, are you approaching it with the degree of respect that it deserves? The respect that your own system deserves. So the way that people are approaching the medicine with this expectation that it's going to solve their problems, I think is a major concern. Mm. And then the second concern is people who have had a powerful experience and now they want to go into holding space for other people. I was working with psychedelics for about 10 years and didn't even want to go into holding space for psychedelics because I was aware of how the magnitude of the potential risk for people. And I know people directly who have been admitted into psych wards. I know people who have spiraled into suicide following these experiences. And I'm not trying to scare people, but it's important to be honest about the reality of the risk and to go into hold space. My capacity to hold space is directly related to what I have the capacity to hold within myself. If somebody is going into some sort of feeling or expression that makes me uncomfortable, mm -hmm. that's going to cripple my ability to hold space. My own stuff is going to start getting activated. I have to be able to depersonalize other people's experience because I am a symbol for them. If somebody has been wounded by the masculine in their life and they start going into that experience and projecting all of those emotions onto me, I have to be able to hold that from a place of loving compassion without any kind of reactivity or judgment. If I can't do that, then I can't hold space for their healing process. I'm going to reactivate their wounding by playing into different dynamics. I have to have some degree of awareness and hypersensitivity to many, many different forms of feeling and expression. You know, there, there's a huge, huge risk for facilitators holding space for people's deepest healing processes, especially if they're not resourced. You know, it's incredibly risky territory in, in our Western world to start giving people high-dose psychedelics. So I think there needs to be more experience, more direct experience with psychedelics for a longer period of time before going into holding space, as well as active study and practice 
in synergistic territory, like body-centered psychotherapeutic tools and techniques, for example, at least going through a trauma-informed training. So they understand some of the mechanisms that could play out, learn something about shamanism, about sound, about all of these different aspects, ritual. Have you ever been in a ritual outside of a psychedelic space? If you haven't, you probably should go. No? What are all of the elements that come into play in a psychedelic ceremony and how much time have you actually immersed yourself into those different individual aspects and figure out where you're lacking experience and pursue that you know we go to school for years and years and years to pursue a career and people will take one weekend training and then they'll go bring people into the deepest most vulnerable territory in their psyche that's really messed up takes a long time to develop the tools and the skills and the faculties to be able to hold space for the heights and the depths. So my suggestion for that, because that I see that a lot now, especially as the, the, the momentum of the psychedelic movement is building up speed. Everybody wants to go into the space and hold other people through those experiences. Pump the brakes for a second. Take an honest look at yourself see how much time and energy and effort you've put into consciously cultivating a greater experiential understanding of of what's involved knowing that knowing the risks and mm. potential harm that can be caused unintentionally or not you know you're playing with people's lives if you're going in there uninformed and you, if you don't have a fully equipped skill set and of course, there's always more to learn. There's always new ways to grow. But at the very least, having the capacity to be with the full range of human expression without having a reaction to it. Baseline requirement. Thank you for speaking to all these different concerns that you've kind of noticed or that have been coming up for you in the space, especially the piece around experience, prioritizing experience of psychedelics. That was actually one of the questions I did want to ask you was around this tendency, which I've also noticed in the space, which is the tendency of people to who have just had a transcendent experience, sometimes one of their first experiences, to then have feel a strong urge to then help share this medicine with others. And I, I was my question was to ask you what you thought about this tendency. And I feel like you kind of already answered that uh, with what you just shared. But yeah, I guess I kind of want to almost ask a follow-up question, which would be like, is there, do you think there's any way that we can because I think the the intention there is obviously is probably a good one, right? Like people want to, but sh- they want to share this medicine. They've had this beautiful experience, and they want others to feel this way. They want others to have this experience. So the, there's some element of that intention which is, you know, virtuous, or there's some element of that intention that can be beneficial. But then obviously, like you said, it, it kind of can be taken taken too far, and without the proper grounding of knowledge, the proper awareness of body, the proper understanding of these medicines, the understanding of the psyche itself, how the mind works. Uh, there's definitely risk. And so I'm wondering, in your opinion, like, do you think there's any way that we could, as kind of a community or a collective or as a space, that we could kind of lean into the the good aspect of that tendency while reinforcing paths for people to actually to go down that path? You know, I think the simple answer is like, well, you know, just have clear paths towards training, right? But I, I feel like the other thing that I want to emphasize with what, you, what your response was, was that you emphasized experience with the medicine. You didn't emphasize, you mentioned training, but that wasn't the emphasis. Your emphasis was on having direct experience with these medicines and forming your own grounded understanding of how they work in your own body 
and then understanding, you know, how they might affect other people. At least that's what I heard from you. Correct me if I'm wrong. So yeah, I'm curious if, if you could speak to that at all, any a little bit further there. Sure. Go into your own journeys where you're being held mm. more. Apprentice with someone. It's not enough to go through a training or to have a theoretical understanding. That's not enough. It's not good enough. Go and actually support other people's offerings as an angel or as an assistant where the bulk of the responsibility is not yours, but you can still go in and participate and hold space in different ways. Go to people who have more experience than you and ask them questions. See if you can support them in some way. You know, the loss of the apprenticeship model, I think is a huge tragedy in these spaces. I mean, I wish I had that when I first started facilitating. I made a lot of mistakes when Aga and I were first facilitating. And thankfully, those mistakes didn't have cataclysmic consequences, but there were some some experiences where I certainly did not support a person's process in the way that they needed, and they exited the experience more closed than they were when they first came in. And there's a part of me that really deeply grieves that. Mm-hmm. It's like not, not invoking more than I have the capacity to hold. And one of the ways to kind of figure that out is to go in as a support rather than as the lead facilitator so that you can learn experientially how to hold space for different things. And then, you know, trainings are still super helpful, but I would suggest looking at ones that are more comprehensive, like multi-year training programs that actually incorporates some sort of self-exploration and personal work as you're learning. This is what gives you an experiential understanding. This is the phrase that I keep using. It's not theoretical understanding. It's experiential understanding that is being informed by a learning. You know, So you can have tangible, structured training programs. That learning process is amplified if there's an experiential portion. It's like what I was talking about. I have to have the capacity to be with whatever it is that shows up in the space with compassionate curiosity and non-reactivity. That's a direct result of me having accessed that space inside of me. That's what mm-hmm. the training is. And then intellectual or theoretical understanding is supportive of your own self-explorations and gives you technical terminology and tools that you can apply to those investigations, both within self and within others. Like all of those elements are important, but experiential understanding is king in my mind in these spaces. And there's no way to speed that process up. Mm -hmm. It's a direct consequence of how much experience you have. So Mm -hmm. that would be my suggestion. Sit with the medicine more with people that you trust for a longer period of time. Because you're the nature of your experience is going to differ widely and go on as a support in ceremony so that you can learn and grow. Thank you, Darius. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. You touched on this a little bit. If it's all right with you, I'll ask you one last question. Sure. There's there's a bunch of other questions I wanted to get to, but I but I think I'll we'll wrap up here before a few housekeeping things. But I'd love to just ask you you know, coming back to the importance of community. So you kind of spoke, we kind of spoke to that a little bit because you had mentioned that, especially in the West, the way that we live today is lacking in certain capacities that in other cultures would naturally be conducive to an integration process. Like you don't need to have an integration process if your community is already integrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of what you're, the point you're making, right? So given that we we unfortunately don't live in an integrative society and given the, the, the fact that 
you have said that you know preparation and integration is an important thing to to work on especially of those of us in the west here especially those people that are you know le- traveling somewhere and coming back having an experience can you speak a little bit more to like how the role of community in the context of psychedelic healing or even like group experiences and what role does community support play in individual journeys because i know with your practice the soma heart you guys have done a wonderful job at focusing on that element i feel like uh, you built a community you actively a big big part of your work is on group experiences which not only is really it's really wonderful for a lot of reasons but i think one of the big things is that it's relational right like you have people coming in and not only are they building a relationship with you as facilitator and aga but they also have this relational component existing in the ceremony space with other people right they're being vulnerable about their process to others sometimes strangers which can have really powerful impact so yeah, just curious if you can speak at all here to a little bit more of your perspective on on community and yeah, wh- why is that so important? Mm, that's a good question. You know, as time goes on, I'm more and more convinced that relationship is actually the secret ingredient. It's the most essential part of everything. Most of the, I mean, a huge portion of people that I've worked with over the last coming up on a decade it's eight years now that i've been facilitating six with psychedelics struggling with depression or anxiety or coping mechanisms it's loneliness they're feeling disconnected from life and they're scared to be themselves they feel like they can't be themselves because if they are they're going to be rejected, criticized, judged, ridiculed, and abandoned. And so they betray their authentic selves for acceptance, but that doesn't let them that doesn't mean they feel connected. Acceptance isn't connection. Connection is formed from being your authentic self and being fully seen and fully heard and fully understood by others in a vulnerable, intimate way that can only come from truthful, transparent, authenticity in the absence of that we don't feel connected so that this is the pandemic in my mind in our world it's loneliness it's isolation it's the inability to connect with other people in meaningful ways and feeling disconnected from life as a whole that's that's one of the core wounds so community is everything relationships is everything it's the salve for the soul it heals the heart It's the thing that people are most scared of, but long for the most. Oftentimes people who want one-on-one sessions want that because they're scared of being witnessed in their process by other people. Not recognizing that that's actually where the healing is. You get together with a group of people who are all doing that together and you feel like family after a few hours together. Why is that? It's because you're being truthful, you're being seen, you're being loved through that. And again, that doesn't just... It's not just present in the psychedelic spaces. This is how, this is what we need in life. So community, I don't think we really know what community is. I think we're trying to remember what community is, which is really how do we be in relationship with each other in a more consistent and meaningful way? (laughs) And just feeling into it in your own life. It's like the times when you felt most connected with people, that's probably the time that you were the happiest. And the most satisfied, the least drawn to addictive, compulsive, defensive, reactive ways of behaving. Isn't that interesting? 
to look at that. So then this leads to the question, how much effort are you putting into your life in cultivating that and nurturing that and nourishing that? Because that's something the medicine won't resolve. Medicine will not build a community for you. Medicine won't build relationships for you. Something you have to do. It's the hardest thing for a lot of people, but I think it's at the heart of a lot of this. You know, seeking out and finding environments where there are invitations to connect more deeply is actually what m most people need more than psychedelics. Thank you, Dea, so much for speaking to that and just for your presence in general. The last hour and a half or so that we've been conversating, I really enjoyed uh, going to the depths of some of these nuanced areas with you and just hearing your perspective on these yeah, concerns, issues, but also just hearing more about the work that you do and all the different ways that you blend uh, certain practices into your own everyday practice and, and just how you approach this work is is really wonderful to not only hear, but also to feel the integrity with which you bring and the passion uh, to the work that you do. So yeah, thank you so much for all the work that you do, but also for taking the time out of your day today to share some of that with the Flying Sage community and anyone else who's listening to this. I'm curious if you might have any last words or any last thoughts that you want to share with the people listening before then sharing any upcoming offerings that you might have that you want people to be aware of or just letting people know as well how they can connect with you. Mm, yeah. Thank you, Michael. It's so great being with you. Via you too. Zoom or in person, I have so much love for you. I've said this to you a few times, but I really admire the work that you're doing and the heart that you bring to everything that you do. It's really wonderful to be here with you. Constantly humbled by the way that you show up. You have a much greater capacity for consistent activity <laughs> than I do. Your work ethic is top, top tier. Oh, I appreciate that so much. Yeah. Thank you. Hmm. Maybe the last thing kind of on my heart right now is just a prayer a prayer that we as a people learn how to be gentle with ourselves and with each other as we relearn how to be vulnerable and honest and true in a way that can be seen and heard and understood. It's a very difficult world out there that does not necessarily foster the things that we're looking for. And I pray that we cultivate the courage, the willingness, and the capacity to actively build the kind of world that we're living in, that we want to live in from a heart-centered place. We, we take our eyes off of these imaginary goalposts of perpetual satisfaction or the fulfillment of our own personal desires or preferences, or an eternal emotional state of joy. We make the space for the full spectrum of the human experience and learn to hold that with love, patience, compassion, because that's the way. That's the way. Mm -hmm. Deep gratitude to our medicine allies, teachers and friends, the great revealers, the generous teachers, the support and all the community builders, 
teachers, leaders, shining a light and showing us the path. Thank you. May we pick up the torch, carry it in a good way. Thank you. Beautiful. Felt shivers. Yeah. If anyone wants to connect with me, there's a few different ways you can find me on Facebook or Instagram, just as my name, Deus Forche. I'm sure that'll be in the title of this podcast. All of my offerings, the ceremonial offerings on, are on my website, with I sh which I share with my partner, Aga. It's thesomaheart.com. And uh, you can also send me an email if you're interested at deusforche at gmail.com. I'd be happy to hear from you. I also have a personal website, but I don't use it as much. It's deusforche.com. Amazing. All right. Well, thanks so much again, Deus. Appreciate you taking the time and hopefully we can schedule a time to do this again in the future. It was such a pleasure mm -hmm. to chat with you. Yeah, I'd love that. Until next time. Okay. Blessings.